0: Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist, fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class, holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity
1: to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr. Ralea Lu on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 40-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. And I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Raylia Liu, a CREI Certified Reproductive Endocrinologist and Infertility Specialist. And today, we're also joined by Dr. Sarah Catford, who is an endocrinologist and andrologist with a special interest in male fertility. Sarah is currently researching the genetic basis and broader health implications of male infertility, specifically investigating the implications of male infertility on offspring health and fertility by clinically evaluating a cohort of ICSI-conceived young men of infertile fathers. I will warn you, this episode is quite medical. I don't talk at all. I'm very busy listening and... I've really enjoyed listening to it again. So it might be one that you listen to twice. We will be inviting Sarah back to record again with us. So if you have any questions after this episode for Sarah, please send them to us at podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or on our Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast. Welcome, Sarah, to Knocked Up. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Uh, sure. Um, so my name's Sarah Catford. Um, I'm an endocrinologist and an andrologist. I um, did my advanced training in endocrinology in Melbourne, so Monash Health, Alfred Health and Western. And then I did um, two years of fellowship in andrology, which is essentially male reproductive health. And I worked at Monash for those two years. And I was doing mostly clinics um for male infertility, testosterone kind of issues. Um, I did a clinic preserving kind of bone in men undergoing pros- have, with prostate cancer, uh, undergoing treatment. So it was quite a varied clinic, um, or clinical exposure. Um, and I started my PhD in 2016, which is essentially a clinical review of young men who were conceived through ICSI because their fathers were infertile. And so I'm kind of at the end of that now, having had um, two lots of maternity leave. So endocrinology, just to touch
1: on that, that's about hormones?
2: Yeah, that, that's right. So it's all about yeah. hormones.
1: And today we're going to talk about male infertility. Is it genetic?
2: Yes. Absolutely. And that
1: would lead into your research in ICSI because to see if men who'd be, well, was it men who'd been conceived by ICSI, were they infer- infertile too?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's the. I guess the, the most obvious concern is that if you have um, a father who had difficulty conceiving and if it was attributed to the father in some way, maybe there was an underlying genetic cause in the father or maybe they couldn't identify anything in the father and then he and his partner underwent ICSI and had a baby boy. I think the first a question that many people have not only in the research world but probably just in general is that what what is the risk of that son inheriting a genetic cause it would is it the same would it be the same as as his father so that's the and then there are other issues or considerations like are there any other broader health effects on the son beyond his potential fertility like maybe his infertile or his father who had infertility? you might maybe affect kind of other aspects of the sun's development and health.
0: So for our listeners who may not be familiar with IVF terminology, when we say ICSI, it stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection and it's an invasive technology used in IVF to directly inject a single sperm right into the inside of an egg. So it's really achieving fertilisation in the most invasive way and it has really revolutionized the management of male factor infertility. Even a generation ago, a lot of men were directed to sperm donation instead of IVF, uh, because IVF's only been around for about 30 to 40 years in mainstream clinical practice. And ICSI's really allowed a lot of men to have babies with their own DNA that they otherwise would not. Have been able to achieve. But it's not just DNA that controls the quality of sperm, it's also a man's environment and his general health. So it's an interaction between nature and nurture. And that's why in IVF practice we focus a lot on diet and lifestyle to try and get sperm as healthy as it can be. So, Sarah, can you tell us about? the genes involved in making sperm to some degree that we know about and what are we just on the cusp of learning about?
2: Well it's a really really complex area there are actually more than 2,000 genes that are involved in making a single sperm so it's incredibly complex and it's not something that we even understand completely so there are genes very important genes that live or sit on the Y chromosome, which is the male sex chromosome, and they're fairly well documented or um, kind of established in terms of their role in making sperm. And so, for instance, we know that men who have a deletion or have one of these genes missing on that part of the Y chromosome will have some varying degrees of impaired sperm production. So there are many genes on the Y chromosome where you know, we, we know exactly what they do. We know that you know if there's a deletion or a problem with that gene, then that will lead to some form of infertility in the man. But there are so many other genes outside of the Y chromosome that we still have no idea about. For instance, there are important genes on the X chromosome so if a, woman, a woman has two X chromosomes and a man has one X and one Y. And we used to think it was just all about the Y chromosome because that is the male chromosome. So surely all the sperm-producing, you know, important genes will be on that chromosome, but that's not actually the case. And, in fact, there are also in important genes on non-sex chromosomes, and so there are 22 of those. So, we don't know, we we don't know all the genes involved, but we know that there are thousands. And there's a lot of effort now and research going into trying to work out what um, genes you know are involved in the sperm production pathway, and that's going to that's yeah, will take I think a long time for us to completely nut out.
0: So what we do know, I suppose, is that, Genetic problems are probably responsible for a lot of unexplained, in inverted commas, male infertility. A male can receive the genes that might be the cause of the problem from his mother as well as from his father. And that sometimes mutations in genes that are important might happen in the male himself and be what we call in medicine de novo, which means happening for the first time in the individual, not inherited from the parents. So it's really complicated. And I guess when we see patients clinically and we find male factor infertility, we run all the tests and we don't identify a reason It doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a reason. It just means we don't fully understand the reason yet. But watch this space.
2: Yeah, and like, unfortunately, what's really frustrating for many clinicians and obviously for patients is that in about 60% of cases, when we have a man who has some abnormality on his semen test, we can't identify a cause even though you know, we run all these, um, these all the tests that we can do and so we do extensive investigations, uh, we can't identify cause. Um, but as you said, Raylia, that we think that actually probably half of those will have some underlying genetic basis to explain the male infertility. And it's very likely that within the next 10, 20 years, will be able to identify those genetic causes, which I think will be really good for everyone because it will, you know, obviously provide people with an explanation and it means that we can develop further tests and then we can even maybe think about targeted therapy. I mean, that's probably a long way off, but um, that's where we're kind of headed, Billy. Really.
0: I think even though it's not something tangible for the current generation of IVF patients that fact that we are making ground and we are finding new ways forward and potentially therapeutic targets for the future is quite reassuring for parents who are needing ICSI to conceive their children in terms of their children's future reproductive potential and health. And I also think it's very reassuring that if today's technology can overcome problems, if those problems are inherited, then tomorrow's technology will only be better. Sarah, I think that segues really nicely into your PhD. Can you tell us what you've looked into in terms of ICSI-conceived children and their later reproductive outcomes and what can we learn from what we know so far?
2: Yeah, so I just fell into this research but I'm so glad that I did because it's been such an interesting, fascinating area and and also because it's been so underappreciated, this whole kind of arena of male infertility research, we're just trying to catch up now with the women. And so it's really, really great to be part of this. So we know we now know a lot about the health of ICSI-conceived children and there have been a lot of studies focused on this. But because ICSI was only introduced in 1992, The first kind of cohort of ICSI-conceived children have only recently reached adulthood, so now is a great time to study their health and, in particular, their reproductive potential. Only one group so far worldwide has looked into the health or the reproductive health of about 50 young men who were conceived through ICSI, and they found some interesting findings. In their study, which was very small, they found that they had reduced sperm quality compared to young men who were conceived naturally. And so in my um, PhD, we're really kind of doing something similar, but on a larger scale. So we started off recruiting um, parents who underwent ICSI at Monash IVF and had baby boys born about 20 years ago on average. And then with some extra funding, we were able to invite parents who conceived through Melbourne IVF. So we had about twelve hundred eligible parents and and sons who could take part in this study. As you can imagine, it was really um, it was hard to you know to contact um, parents about twenty years after they went through treatment because it's very sensitive, of course. And so about thirty five percent of parents contacted took part, which is you know still I was very pleased with. And then of those parents, we asked permission to contact their sons. And so that kind of trickled down to about, we invited about 260 sons to take part in this study. And we asked them to do a questionnaire and then also to do a clinical review, um, which involved a semen analysis. And I was really interested to find out that about 60% of sons invited took part And if they took part, they were very likely to do everything. So we've got a really good sample now of over 100 young men um, for whom we have, you know, blood samples on, semen, you know, samples on, questionnaire data and physical examination information. So I'm now really just kind of putting all together and trying to um, analyse the data I can I can't tell you I can't really tell you anything at the moment because it's all unpublished and my my supervisors will get cross. But we've got it, it. I think the results will be really um, interesting, and they
1: should we should be publishing next year. We'll have to have you back when we've got the results. Absolutely.
0: So, Sarah, we've talked about genetic causes of infertility, those that we know and those that are unknown. Let's go through the known genetic causes that a doctor looks for when severe male infertility is suspected. I'll just mention that we're not talking here about one little blip of one parameter on a semen analysis. We wouldn't suspect a major genetic issue if that's the case. But if a man has what we call azospermia, meaning absolutely no sperm at all in the ejaculate, or very severe, what we call oligozoospermia, meaning very, very, very few sperm in the ejaculate, what are the kind of things that you and I look for?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. We know that for a man who has no sperm in the ejaculate, then his risk of having an underlying genetic cause is much higher. So overall, we... Far, about 15% of infertile men will have an identifiable genetic cause, but that increases to about 25% if there is no sperm in the ejaculate, so if a man has azoospermia, And within that, we can break it down into different, I guess, causes. The commonest cause is some sort of chromosomal abnormality so within within that, I did mention previously about this important region on the Y chromosome of the man. So there's a particular region; it's called the azospermia factor region (AZF), and it's a tiny region, but it contains critical genes that are that are essential for sperm production. And so, then the, the commonest kind of genetic cause is. For male infertility, is a deletion of one of these genes, or it could be more than one gene, in this region on the Y chromosome. And there are different names for those gene deletions, which I won't go into. Most typically, men who have one of these gene deletions will, will either have no sperm in the ejaculate or they have very, very low cancer sperm in the ejaculate. So we only test for one of these gene deletions if there is less than 5 million sperm per mil in the ejaculate, but in fact it's possible now, well, in the future, that guidelines might even restrict that to a lower, you know, um, number like less than 2.5 million because it generally isn't seen in men who have counts more than 2.5 million per mil. So that's one test that we can do. The other, um, other than deletions on this Y chromosome, there are other um, chromosomal abnormalities that are um, found in a higher proportion of infertile men than in non-infertile men. And these can be some sort of numeric chromosomal abnormality. So a man might have an extra chromosome of some sort, or he might have a chromosome that's missing, or there might be some structural problem with a chromosome so, little bits of chromosomes might get stuck onto another chromosome, or
0: and we ask our patients with infertility to do karyotype studies, both of the male and of the female, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for arrangements of chromosomes that are abnormal that a man may not be aware of and a woman may not be aware of, and Actually, it's not restricted to men who have an abnormal semen analysis. Male infertility can be silent with a chromosome translocation. And I've had lots of patients actually in my practice over the years where we found the reason for either failure to conceive or recurrent miscarriage through a male translocation with a normal semen analysis. So it's one of those things that if you don't look, you don't find. And my personal approach is to do karyotypes up front so I never miss it. Mm. But it is something that can come up later in a workup if karyotype hasn't been looked at.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, I guess the AZF region, the azospermia factor region, is really important also in terms of how we manage a patient who either has a very low sperm count or azospermia more importantly because occasionally in men who have azospermia, there can still be little regions of the testis that still make a very small amount of sperm. And for some men, we can do what's called a microtesi, which is a, a operation where the sperm is looked for by literally opening up the testis under a microscope and searching for those tiny little regions. There are some AZF mutations that have been really well studied and unfortunately no one in the world has ever found sperm in associated with those mutations. So, you know, that's one of the things that we would use to counsel a man as to whether we should pursue the idea of microtesio or maybe unfortunately, if if they have to think about donor sperm instead.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was just going to say that there are, other than the chromosomal abnormalities, there are um, other kind of genetic, known genetic causes, but probably these would be maybe a bit more obvious. So there are genetic syndromes that are associated with male infertility, but I don't, I, th- I suspect that anyone with, with such a syndrome would know about it, you know, before family planning. So, for instance, um, not always, of course, but a syndrome called Kalman syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome and a few other kind of slightly unusual syndromes are associated with male infertility. And then there are single gene mutations in in particular um, genes that have been recognised to play a role. So there are genes in the androgen receptor, for instance, that are associated with male infertility. And then it goes on to all this obscure things like there is stuff I don't even understand a lot of it, like copy number variations and there's lots of genetic polymorphisms, which is all kind of really, I think just makes the point that some people will have a genetic predisposition. And if that, that person is in the right kind of environment um, where there might be some sort of trigger as in a some sort of detrimental trigger, so perhaps you know, they've been exposed to some pollutants or something that's toxic or they're a smoker, then that might be enough just to trigger this infertile phenotype with this underlying genetic predisposition. So it's it's quite complex and it's probably multifactorial. It may not just be one single gene mutation. It may be a collection of small changes in some genes and then some sort of environmental factor as well.
0: That's really interesting, and I think a great point. I sometimes am asked by patients who I'm trying to convince to stop smoking, to improve their fertility, and they say sometimes, "Well, you know, all my friends smoke too, and they have children naturally. So why should I stop smoking to improve my sperm?" What's your answer to that question?
2: Oh, I think I think it'll be the same as your answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know that smoking is bad for so many. Aspects of health, and it does not exclude fertility. And certainly, it's well documented, you know, the the badness that smoking has on various aspects of semen parameters. But for that reason, is that okay? Maybe it didn't affect your, you know, your friend down the street from having a baby, but you're not that friend, and you all have a different genetic makeup, and a risk for for you might not be the same. I guess of equal um importance as it might be for someone else and that's got to do with you know your genetic makeup.
0: Yeah, so don't smoke. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, also the other thing that you know I'm a silent cystic fibrosis carrier and that's another thing we look for sometimes for male infertility when we find azoospermia and even when we find low sperm count. Um, can you talk us through how cystic fibrosis mutations affect male infertility?
2: Yeah, I, f- I didn't mention that previously, probably because it's kind of in its own little area. So cystic fibrosis is um, a disease that more commonly affects Caucasians and it's, um has widespread manifestations, the most common of which is lung, you know, um, uh, chronic lung disease But those with cystic fibrosis, the men at least, um, have um, a missing duct called the vas deferens, which um, forms part of the genitourinary, well, the reproductive tract, sorry, forms part of the reproductive tract in men. So from the testis, sperm travel into the epididymis, which is the top part of the testis. And then from there, they travel into the vas deferens, which is this tube that carries the sperm kind of through the pelvis and then it's joined by glands that um, produce seminal fluid and then eventually that duct comes out through the penis and that's how sperm is ejaculated. In men with cystic fibrosis, they are missing this duct, which means that, of course, the sperm can't get out, but in almost all cases, depending upon their overall health, I suppose, um, they will have normal sperm production in the testis so that's quite easy if you have, of course, someone with cystic fibrosis. But if, you, if you're faced um, with a man or you see a man and he has features to suggest some blockage in the tube, features would be, for instance, that the man has normal testicular volumes suggesting or indicating that sperm production is occurring normally. And on semen analysis, um, there's no sperm and the volume might be low as well, and that is a bit of a flag. Together with some other things like the pH of the seminal fluid, and um, and certain levels of other seminal fluid con- um, parameters, and if you see that and and hormone levels are normal, then you're very suspicious that there could be a blockage in in part somewhere along the tract. And on the top of your list is um, a missing vas deferens and and this explains about one to two percent of male infertility and it's basically kind of like a a mild version if you like of cystic fibrosis where there's there are no other manifestations other than a missing duct a missing vas deferens so this is called congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens and we can test for this through a genetic test so a man would undergo a blood test, and that blood would be sent off for cystic fibrosis gene testing. And then you'd be able to identify, you know, if if this man um, had a positive gene had a, had a positive gene result in conjunction with those clinical features, then that would be the diagnosis. But of course, he doesn't have cystic fibrosis.
0: Yeah, that's important. You can be a carrier, not have any physical symptoms of the disease, cystic fibrosis, but still have an absent vas. So that is a a cause of infertility that is first picked up in some people where they do a sperm test and there's no sperm. Sarah, you're an endocrinologist, so you've then gone on to subspecialise in andrology and I'm a reproductive endocrinologist being a gynaecologist who then went on to do a further subspecialty through the College of ONG of reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So there's a bit of overlap between you and I and what we do, but there's also some pretty important differences. And, you know, there's the way that not every doctor in IVF is a reproductive endocrinologist. Around Australia, many doctors who do practice IVF are gynecologists who have interest in fertility as opposed to subspecialists who have the dual qualification. So the way that you would help doctors and support doctors who practice IVF with a very much female focus is, is quite different to the way that you and I would interact as I cover andrology as part of reproductive endocrinology. But there's a certain time point where I would refer to an andrologist um, because you would subspecialize in looking after male hormonal health throughout a man's reproductive life and beyond the time point in his life when he is interested in reproduction. Can you um, tell us about a, a andrologist, because they're rare on the ground andrologists, you're a very special and niche subspecialty. I, they, I know there are not many in Melbourne. Can you tell us about your pathway into andrology and um, the kind of patients maybe we can explain that you look after as an andrologist?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, my pathway was very opportunistic. I just, I didn't, I never expected to go into this area, but I ended up doing a fellowship and it was just, and I loved it. And it is such a great niche. And I think um, it's um, rewarding because not many people do it. And so it's not, it's not too difficult to suddenly be an expert because no one else um has done like the further training, at least in endocrinology. And my mentor and and mentor and kind of main PhD supervisor is Professor Rob McLaughlin, who's very well known and internationally recognised for his work in male infertility and he's an andrologist. So, yes, I mean, we really, I don't think we differ too much probably when it comes to reproductive endocrinology for those like yourself who have this additional training because it's all about, you know, sperm production and optimising sperm production and trying to identify, you know, um, a cause of male infertility and, if possible, um, treat anything that might be underlying it. But then there's the other, it's not just about sperm. And as we know, the, the, the testes make testosterone as well. So they have, you know, two functions, sperm production and testosterone production. And often they go hand in hand, but they similarly, you know, just as frequently are kind of independent of each other. And so often I see, I've seen men in clinical practice where they have an isolated spermatogenic defect where the primary issue is in the testis, but their testosterone production is preserved and it's totally unaffected. Which seems just strange that you could have something just one part of the testis function kind of um, picked out and the other part work totally normally. But I think that just goes to show that, you know, point to the fact that it's, it's not you can't it's not very simplistic to say you just, you know, you damage the testis, you damage your functions of the testis. It's you know, it's it's a much more nuanced than that. In in that setting, then it's just about fertility. But then there are other men where who do have a combined you know, deficit. So they might have issues with sperm production and they might also have some strain on testosterone production. And that might not become clinically evident until later on in their life. So you have to be mindful of that when seeing a man, that just to review that part of the testis function to ensure that it's there is no evidence that it's starting to decompensate in a way because if you do see some some evidence and that's just looking at the hormonal profile then you might say to that man look um this isn't a problem now um as in sperm testosterone production is not a problem now but it looks like you know there there might be some strain you're you know like in terms of the testis kind of in overdrive to maintain testosterone levels and so it's something that we need to watch and we need to monitor for the you know for the rest of your life and that's quite easy to do and it's not at all invasive it's just a blood test and in some cases it can you know you can ask the gp to monitor that if you're not particularly worried so that's something to be i guess mindful of when you're or well, at least I'm very mindful of when seeing a man about that possibility and then of course you have men where already there's an issue with testosterone production from the get go so there's a dual problem where you've got impaired sperm production and you've got impaired testosterone production. And so those men require, you know, some more input um, once they've sorted out their fertility in there, you know, what what they'd like to do from that point of view.
0: I think that's a super important point as well, because when I see a man who has a very low sperm count, but not a zero sperm count, and I'm sure you're the same in this circumstance, we freeze that sperm because it could be, that in months or um, years down the track, there is no sperm in the ejaculate when there once was. And I tell my patients to keep that sperm frozen until they've completed their family because they may stop making sperm one day and it might present a a great advantage to have frozen sperm
2: and it's difficult to you can't you can't predict what will happen over time. In, uh, the natural history is often unclear about what will happen in ten years, in twenty. Well, yeah, twenty years. I mean, it's um. I mean, sometimes you can if if there's an AZF deletion in in the in the factor region, then you definitely can say well, this is almost certainly going to deteriorate with time. But then, but in other cases where there might have been a static kind of insult to the testis and a man might have um, low sperm count, provided there aren't any ongoing threats, then that sperm count might remain stable. But like you said, you just don't know and you've got to, you know, the best thing to do is to, is to store. So you've got that assurance.
0: Sarah, I normally counsel patients that male factor infertility is every bit as common as female infertility. Would you agree?
2: Yes, I would agree. The man is just as important as the woman um, in conceiving uh, a child. And we now know that about 30% of of the time when a couple can't conceive, it might be a female factor. 30% of the time, it might be a male factor. 30% of the time, it might be a combined factor. And then 10% of the time, we can't identify anyone. I mean, they're, they're both, there's nothing coming up as as um abnormal in the in the woman or the man, so men contribute just as much to as women to a couple's chance to have a baby.
0: Why do you think I mean we've mentioned that andrology is a relatively neglected side of fertility medicine. Why do you think historically that is?
2: It was assumed that um it was all about the woman that perhaps because the woman was the one you know, getting pregnant, that and the man really only had to contribute sperm. That his role in the whole thing was really not as big as it actually is. And I think part of the reason why male infertility is very is very sensitive is because it is wrapped up in masculinity. And I think that would, I'm sure social scientists would have a lot to say about this and about how, you know, the, the difference in, in genders, in sexes, in terms of talking about personal things. And for men, I think a lot of it's because it's, you know, the testis is, is involved in testosterone production as well as sperm. And so they're so, inter, you know, kind of interconnected. If they don't, you know, produce sperm normally, then that's somehow a hit to their... Their identity or their masculinity. But over time now, um, researchers and, um, clinicians have recognized that, you know, the man, the, uh, recognize the importance of, or the man's contribution rather to conception. And so there's been a big shift now.
0: So I guess that also raises an interesting point. How as clinicians, can we make men feel comfortable? In our clinical encounters, how can we help them to engage in the healthcare process so that we can help couples?
2: Um, I think it's important just to it's normalise it. I think we've got to be talking about it, um, not just in our clinical settings, but it needs to be something that's more widely spoken about. I know that Rob, Rob McLaughlin, my PhD supervisor, is the director of the Healthy Male, which is this really excellent... Um, online resource for men not just about their fertility but about lots of other male related issues and I think we need more of that and we need um, just there to be no stigma and I, I, I think in schools I mean I remember being at school and I just don't really recall that much about kind of it was a you know one session on contraception and that was about it like there's probably you know, a lot more um, information given to um, young girls at schools about their kind of reproductive health. But I think we've got to do that for the, the guys as well. You know, we talk so much about maternal age and about and this huge pressure on women that they've got this ticking biological clock and everyone kind of knows about it. But actually, you know, we're finding that, you know, paternal age actually is also is is important. And, I think for a lot of young men, they just assume that they will be able to have children. That's, um, they don't have a biological clock, but actually that's not the case. And I think we've really got to educate young you know, boys in schools to look after their reproductive health. So contraception, barrier contraception is really important because sexually transmitted infections um, carry a risk in terms of injuring the testes. And so, you know, I don't think men are aware of that. And also that as they get older not in their you know best interest to, you know to, to leave their fertility too late because they can maybe be able to still make sperm at age 50 but it's you know if they can have children earlier then that would be kind of better
0: yeah and I guess we've talked a lot about genetics but what happens with male aging is more epigenetic isn't it? yeah
2: epigenetics is this new kind of um, flavor of the month. Well, it's not just flavor of the month. It's very popular now. So epigenetics um, refers to the gene expression. So altered gene expression within a person that might be because of some environmental factor. So the genetic makeup of that person is not changed. So the DNA structure has not been changed, but the way that certain genes are expressed, so the way they function has changed. And that might be because of some environmental factor, as I mentioned, like smoking, or like, you know, a lot of them, we don't really know, like radiation exposure, or plastics, you know, there's a lot now on You see every every water bottle like BPA free and there's all these like chemicals that are involved in not just plastics but in your clothes and furniture and sun creams and body lotions and then like, you know, toxins and pollutants in the air and lifestyle factors, so diet and obesity and ageing. All of these things can affect the way our genes are expressed and the way that they function and that might affect um, someone's fertility potential.
0: Yeah, we've also um, got an episode in our back catalogue on endocrine disrupting chemicals. So we'll put a link in the show notes talking about all those things that Sarah was mentioning that can affect the way that our genes function in context of our environment. In ageing men, we have seen an increase in the offspring of ageing men, in the children of ageing men who have successfully conceived with their partner, often a younger partner, We've seen increases in what we call de novo genetic mutations. So the way that that genes copy and and make photocopies of themselves to have the dividing cells created, we see mistakes happening more often. And one of the examples we've seen in the literature is an increase in babies being born with dwarfism with achondroplasia. We've also seen an increase in more subtle, and what we call polygenic, meaning lots of different genes interacting to cause a problem, traits like schizophrenia and even autism spectrum disorders being more likely to occur in the offspring of older men. So their genes haven't changed, but as Sarah was saying, the way that those genes function in the body does have an impact when men do get older. Sarah Normally, our patients could see you as an andrologist, but at the moment, you're pretty busy being the mum of little children, but also in the in the throes of your very impressive PhD research. Tell us, what are your future directions?
2: Well, I, I'm actually joining you from Canberra. We will be returning to Victoria next year, probably mid next year, and I would would like to re-engage with my andrology work in Melbourne. So I'll keep you posted.
0: (laughs) Sounds great. We look forward to working together again. So exciting. And Sarah will be joining us for a further episode. Um, So if any of our listeners have questions for Sarah, please do send them. Geordie where can our listeners send questions?
1: They can send them to podcast at podcast.womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and also through our Instagram at knockeduppodcasts and we'll um, pass them on to Sarah and address them in further episodes about male infertility.